Let's pray, then we'll jump in. Uh, God, you're good. And God, it's really good uh, to be here to get to spend some time in your word. God, we ask that you'd speak through uh, your word to us today. Uh, God, that um, the, in the areas where we're struggling, God, that you would meet us there. God, that you would give us uh, the clarity to see ourselves and the, the, the discernment to hear your voice, to hear your leading, and to recognize the conviction that you have for us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, have you guys ever seen somebody doing something really stupid that, like, you know is going to end badly, but they just keep doing this? All right, let me introduce you to ice fishing. Now, for some people, that's all you need to hear, right? The idea of, like, sitting on frozen water fishing is dumb enough. But ice fishing, what you do is, is you go out, and generally you drill a hole in the ice, and and usually you use some level of common sense and you stand on ice that is thick enough to hold your weight. Uh, oftentimes the ice is a couple, three feet thick. You drill through it and then you sit there for hours and hours and hours in freezing temperatures above freezing water waiting for a fish to bite, right? Some people are shaking their heads. They're like, no, I'm, I'm not in already. So this is about 10, 15 years ago. Uh, I was out uh, walking and running my dogs one day at uh, the wildlife refuge back in my hometown. And rounded the corner, and there's a pond there. And, and it gets cold in Kansas, but generally not cold enough that people do a lot of ice fishing. Usually the ice doesn't get thick enough that, you know, you feel safe walking out on it and then drilling hole and, and then fishing there. But we turned the corner, and here's this pond. And in the middle of this pond was a guy with some fishing poles. And so clearly he was out there. He was ready to go ice fishing. Uh, but apparently he'd forgot his drill or his auger that day. So he had no way of poking a hole in the ice. So we turned a corner and I see him and literally this is what I see. A guy in the middle of a pond, like with boots on, stamping a hole in the ice. All right, listen, if you ever go ice fishing and the ice is shallow enough that you can stamp a hole in it in your boots, that is not ice you want to be on, right? And you see this and you just know it's going to end badly. I mean, you know, we were a long way away. We were like, man, that is not going to end well. Fortunately, this, this pond was pretty shallow, so he wouldn't have fallen very far in. But we see people, and, and we think, wow, that is just so dumb what you're doing. You, you should stop this. Everybody else can see that it's going to end badly, except for the person doing it. But then sometimes it hits a little bit closer to home, and, and we realize that, that we are that person doing it. There's a story in the Bible, in Genesis 25, and it's a story a lot of us are familiar with, but with a, a guy who just, again, does something so dumb that we look at and we say, oh, if you had any perspective at all, you wouldn't fall into this. Uh, it's the story of, of uh, two brothers, Jacob and Esau. And if we remember, Abraham was this guy that God called, and God said, hey, Abram, I'm going to call you and your wife. I'm going to make an entire nation out of your sons and your grandsons and out of, out of the people that come out of your family line. And from them, the Savior of the world is going to come. Uh, but first, I want you to move with me. I want you to pack up everything and go to this new land. So Abraham, he, he followed God in obedience. And God blessed him. He became incredibly prosperous. Uh, then he had a son, Isaac. And Isaac kind of took everything that his father had given him and just made it even bigger. And so he expanded it. So he had this, this massive, massive property holdings all this wealth, all these servants. And then he had two sons. He had these sons, Esau and Jacob. And Esau is described as, as kind of the, the outdoors guy. He's a skilled hunter. He's the guy who's like out in the fields all the time. 
And then Jacob is described as a man of the tents. Uh, apparently he was, he was more at home just kind of hanging out at home. And one time Esau is out hunting, and apparently it wasn't, it wasn't a very fruitful hunt. He was gone for a number of days, and he comes back, and he thinks he's famished. He's starved when he comes back. So he gets back, and the first thing that he sees is his brother Jacob. And Jacob is out cooking stew. And so Esau comes up to him and says, Brother, I am so starved. Give me some stew. And Jacob is a schemer. And Jacob looks at him and says, Tell you what, I will give you some stew if you promise to give me your share of the inheritance. Now Esau was the older brother. And so his share of the inheritance meant that he already was going to get at least two-thirds of everything that his father had. And so when Isaac said, I want you to give me, what he actually said is, I want you to give me your birthright. And, and what that meant is that Jacob then would be viewed as the older son, and everything that was supposed to go to the older son would go to Jacob instead of Esau. And so Jacob says, hey man, I'll give you a bowl of stew, but only if you give me your birthright. And everybody, I mean, we look at this, and we're looking at Esau, and Esau comes up, and his brother Jacob's cooking there, but I mean, this is a massive operation. And so there's, this isn't like the only bowl of stew in miles. It's just the one that was right in front of him. And we look at it and we think, Esau, that's, that's a horrible, horrible idea. That's, that's not wise. You shouldn't give up your right as the oldest son to everything that that entails just so you can eat a bowl of stew. And yet Esau sits there and he was so hungry and the stew looked so good. And he's like, yeah, that's, that sounds like a good idea. I'm in. So he traded his way, his birthright, for this bowl of stew, and that changed the entire lineage of his family and of Jacob's family. Because it, it flipped around, and Jacob then became the one who was the father of Israel. And Esau became a father of a number of people who became nomads. And, and he sold all of this for a bowl of stew when probably within 100 yards there were three other kitchens with other food possibilities. And we look at that and we say, Esau, that... That is just dumb. That's just not smart. But the truth is, every one of us has our bowl of stew, right? Every one of us has that thing that we look at and we lose all sense of rationale, right? We're in the middle of a series right now, and it's called Five Ways to Wreck Your Life. And today we're talking about addiction. Uh, you know, it, we, we've talked about drifting uh, the first week, uh, Dave Allgaier brought the word. And, and you know, this, this idea that, that if we're not really intentional, we can just kind of drift off our faith. And the last week, Grant talked to us uh, about sex and pornography and how damaging that can be to uh, not just marriage relationships, but relationships with Jesus, with each other, and to life in general. But today, we're going to talk about addiction. And in, in your bulletin, you have a number of blanks. This is the first one. And the first truth is this, is that everyone is an addict. The only question is, what is the object of our addiction? Because sometimes as Christians, if we have our life kind of together, there's a temptation to talk about addiction, and, and, and we kind of almost want to turn off part of it and say, okay, like I know some people that applies to, but, but that's not necessarily me. But when we look at the, the definition of addiction, it's, it's this, addiction is persistent, compulsive use of a substance, I would add here, or a habit that's known by the user to be harmful. It's this, this compulsive returning 
to this thing that we know is harmful. And, and when we talk about addictions, like, we, we all know there's, there's a number of addictions that, that are incredibly harmful in our minds, right? You know, someone who's addicted to drugs or alcohol, uh, someone who's addicted, addicted to pornography or sex. All of us, if, if we haven't experienced that in our own life, we know people or know of people who we watch them just ruin their life because this, this compulsive returning to a habit that they know is harmful, but they just can't say no to. But then there's some other addictions that, that show up sometimes that, that for whatever reason, we, we sometimes in the church make a little bit more acceptable. You know, we talk about a, the, the coffee one. That hits a little bit too close to home for me, right? I mean, I'm, a, I'm a pretty much like I start drinking coffee and I wake up and I stop, well, now that I'm 33, I have to stop at like 6.30 p.m., otherwise I'm up late, right? But then some of us, we start talking, we realize that, that some of us, we just, we love gossip. We love talking about other people, catching up on what's going on on other people. We love being on, on social media and just being on top or making our presence felt. Uh, for some of us in the church, eating. Uh, and there's two ends of addictions there. Some of us, we, we just return to food or we just stay away from food because we have this, this image that we feel like we need to have. But then there's some addictions, too, that we can almost disguise as good things. And total confession, I mean, this is, this is an addiction, and all of us are addicts. The only question is, what is the object of our addiction? Because when we're addicts, you're never not an addict. You're, you're just in different levels of recovery for the rest of your life, right? And for me... One of the addictions that, that I've struggled with is, is myself. And I, I love looking good. Uh, I, I like making myself, having myself look put together. Um, I mean, I'm from Kansas, so not always, you know, clothing-wise. But I love, I like coming back, looking confident, looking like I have it together, looking like I have the answers, and, and being funny, even if it's at the expense of other people. And that's something that God's been working on my life for pretty much my entire life as a Christian. But it's an addiction that I have because I, I, I know it's not always good. I know it's not always healthy. I know it's not healthy to not be vulnerable, to, to not allow people to see the real things that God is doing in my life. And yet it's so easy for me to come back and, and try and paint this image of myself that other people see that makes me look good. All of us are addicts. The only question is, what is the object of our addiction? Every single person in this room, we, we have that bowl of stew. For some of us, it may be drugs or alcohol. For some of us, it, it might be self-image. It, it might be a relationship that's unhealthy that we just seem not to be able to say no to. And today, we're going to be in Romans chapter 7, because the Apostle Paul uh, I think he maybe gives one of the best, like, working definitions of addiction that I've ever heard. Now, Paul, if we remember, he was a guy who was on track to be the most influential Jewish man in the world, right? He, he was this guy, he, he grew up as a Roman citizen, uh, which in the first century was, was huge. That opened so many doors. Uh, he also grew up uh, from the tribe of Benjamin, which is kind of an exalted tribe. I mean, if you're going to be from one of the tribes of Israel, Benjamin is a pretty good one to be from. Uh, he grew up in a powerful family. He went to all the right schools. He had all the right connections. Uh, before he met Jesus, uh, he was uh, studied under this, uh, this Pharisee, this rabbi named Gamaliel, who is one of the two most influential rabbis in the world. And Paul was his prized student. 
So Paul was a guy who was literally on the fast track to success. And so he, he starts persecuting Christians. Jesus gets a hold of him. He starts following Jesus. Uh, then Jesus says, okay, you're going to be my missionary. You're going to go plant churches, and I'm going to use you to reach the Gentile world. And so Paul says, okay. Paul jumps on board. He goes, starts preaching, starts planting churches. Fast forward about 15 years. He starts writing letters to these churches that, that he's preached to, that he's planted uh, just all over the world. And then we get to the book of Romans. The book of Romans, it's written to the church in Rome by Paul. And, and it's a church that he didn't actually plant, but he has a lot of influence over. And Romans is kind of, kind of Paul's magnum opus. It's, it's his like doctoral dissertation. It's, it's an incredibly deep, complicated book. But Paul opens up the book of Romans by saying, look, his people were all lost. And it doesn't matter if, if you're a Jew or a Gentile. Without Jesus, you're lost. And then he moves into this section where he talks about how, how because we're lost, we need Jesus. And when we start following Jesus, there's this new life, this new birth. There's a lot of talk in Romans chapter 6 about baptism, about how just like Jesus died and then rose from the dead, so also we as Christians, when we're baptized, that's the, 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 the picture that we get of someone who's dying to their old self, but then coming up in this new life in Christ. And then Paul gets to Romans 7, and he starts describing something that I read, and I'm like, you know what, that is like my life sometimes. This is what he says, Romans 7, 15 through 24. Paul says this, he says, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. When was the last time in your life that you looked and you're like, man, I know that that's not what I want to do, but it's still what I did. And Paul is, is like one of the greatest Christians. I mean, he's definitely on the top five list of, of greatest followers of Jesus who's ever lived, right? And he's still trying to figure this out. He says, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, and that's good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Man, I think that's a great description of my life sometimes, right? But there's a lot of complicated verbiage in there. But Paul's talking, he basically says, look, the things that I, I want to do, that's not what I do. But the things that I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing sometimes, even though I don't want to do them. And I hate that about myself. And I know, like, I really want to do what God's calling me to do. But sometimes I feel like sin just takes over my life. And even though I want to say no to it, I just, I just can't on my own. And I read that and I'm like, you know what? That sounds an awful lot like my life sometimes. Uh, just an easy example of this. A couple weeks ago, I was, I was having a discussion with some friends and, you know, you, you, with friends, like, you know, you, you should never talk too heavily about politics, right? That's kind of a personal rule that I have that I, that I try to follow uh, just because I, 
I love to debate. I love to get in a good argument, uh, but that's not always healthy. So I was sitting there talking with some friends uh, about the church and Christianity, and, and then politics kind of worked its way in. It's one of those where I was like, all right, I'm not going to talk about this. Not going to talk about this. Not going to talk about this. Oh, man, i got to answer that. And I just, like, jumped in, right? And just, like, full bore, both guns blazing, started talking through this. And fortunately, I had a really wise friend who was part of that conversation who jumped in about 30 seconds in, just as I was getting that head of steam, and, like, redirected the conversation and came up to me later, and I was like, dude, thank you. Uh, because, like, I, I, I didn't even want to do that, but, like, that's where I found myself. And that's an easy description or maybe a little bit lighter description. But that's what sin does in our lives, right? And for us, Paul talks about this thing, this sinful nature, this this innate desire within us to do things our own way, to do things not the way that God wants us to. And when we're born again, when we say, Jesus, I want to follow you with my life, and we make that decision. Jesus comes in, the Spirit enters our life and starts directing our paths. There's always a temptation at that point to say, okay, like things are going to be easy because I don't understand completely how the, the Holy Spirit in me fixes things. But once I decide to follow Jesus and, 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 and I'm a Christian, then, I mean, it should be pretty easy to say no to that whole sin thing. And yet Paul right here is saying, no, it's, it's really not that easy. In fact, he kind of ends this section saying, okay, I don't understand where the hope is because I'm a pretty wretched man and I'm having trouble figuring this out. And I think that's a great description of not just addiction, but sin in general. And maybe it's, maybe it's just that we're addicted to sin. But then Paul starts to turn the corner. Listen to what he says in verse 25. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So apparently there's, there's something to be thankful for because, because Paul says, hey, thanks, thanks be to God. Because God's done something. And, and while there's still that flesh side of me, there, there's still that part of me that, that desires to do things my way, whatever that looks like, generally instant gratification of something or short-term seeing but there's something that we can be thankful for. And then he gets to chapter 8. And this is where Paul describes really what we call the mystery of the gospel. Describes what God does through us. So chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, this is what Paul says. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is basically the gospel, summed up in like one paragraph. It's this idea that we couldn't fix ourselves. That that whole flesh, that whole sin desire, that, that sin nature, Paul calls it the, the flesh, um, that that controls us and we have no power over us, uh, is, what, is what people thought was the belief, this feeling of helplessness. And that's most of Satan and sin's power over us, is, is the idea, the convincing that, hey, there's nothing that I can do. I can't control that. And then God sent his son, Jesus, who came down, who lived life as a man. 
it was faced with that same sin struggle that we're faced with, that same, that same addiction, that same compulsion to do things my way or do things for me. But Jesus was able to say no to that his entire life. Jesus lived this perfect life. Then he died a death on the cross. Then he raised from the dead because he's God. And then Jesus said, if you follow me, then you can have that same power that I have where you're set free from being locked into sin, where you are set free from that captivity that sin has on your life, from that addiction to sin. And that's, that's the gospel, and I can't explain exactly how it works. Paul calls it the mystery of the gospel. And I, I know I've seen how it works in my life. And I know it looks a little bit different in all of our lives, and I can't explain exactly what happens, but through the power of Jesus, the shackles of sin are broken. And it doesn't mean that life is easy or perfect or any of that. But what it does mean is that if I choose to follow Jesus, that I have access to that power over sin, and that when God looks at me, he doesn't see a broken person who's chained to sin, but he sees a broken person who is his son or his daughter. And that's huge when we're talking about addiction, when we're talking about sin struggle. Here's the second blank. This is it. The only real permanent cure for addiction is a relationship with Jesus. If we try to do things on our own, that sometimes works for the short term. Some of us are pretty, pretty disciplined. Some of us have a, have a lot of willpower. And we can say no for a long time. But we'll get to this later. Isolation is really, really dangerous anytime you're talking about any kind of addiction. Isolation is where addictions go to grow. We can't do things on our own. And there's no perfect person out there outside Jesus. So when we're looking to do things with somebody else, when we're looking for that help, there's only one perfect helper there. That's Jesus. There are only two options. Here's the next blank. Either we're walking with the flesh or we're walking with the spirit. Paul talks about that and he talks about how the flesh is at war inside me. That's the me that I used to be before I turned over power and authority to Jesus. That was the flesh and it's at war. And I'm either walking with that side of me that picks me first or I'm walking with the, side, with the spirit and saying, Jesus, I'm following you and I'm choosing you first. There's an old Native American tale where this, uh, this grandfather was talking to his grandson. And he told him that, that, grandson, inside each of us are, are two wolves, two ravenous wolves. And one of them's good and one of them's evil. And they're at war for power over us. So the grandson looked at his grandfather and says, well, which one wins? And the grandfather looks at his grandson and said, well, whichever one you feed, that's who wins. I think there's a lot of truth in that because there's this flesh inside of us, that this, this part of me that says, hey, choose Jake. Whatever that looks like, choose Jake. But then there's another side of me that I've turned over to Jesus that says, seek first the kingdom of God. Whichever one of those I choose, that one gets easier to choose the next time and the next time and the next time. Or if I choose the kingdom of God first, the next decision I have to make, it's that much easier to choose the kingdom of God, whichever one you feed. So real quick, to wrap up, here's three things. If you're struggling with an addiction, this can be any addiction at all, the first thing you can do is get help, confess, and repent. Confession is so important in the church. 
really in life, in any area, but especially in the church. Because at the church, I love what Grant said the other day, is that you know, we're not a museum of righteous people, but we're a hospital for sick and broken people. But one of the hardest things to do in church is to come in and say, hey guys, I'm broken and here's how. There's always some of our life we, we like to keep in darkness. And sometimes it's because we're, we're too proud to admit it, we're ashamed of what's there, or we're hopeless, and we just don't think it's, it's going to help. But one of the very best things we can do is just shine light on stuff. This is the way Jesus says it in 1 John 1, 9. John's right in this church, and he starts off by saying, look, if you claim that you don't have any sin, you're just a liar. And, and really, Jesus isn't in you. But then he says this. He says, if we confess our sins... Jesus is faithful and just. He'll forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's how Jesus works. The best thing we can do is if there's darkness in something, we shine light on it. And then we repent. And repent just means we turn the other direction. That's why any addiction group that you go to, any recovery group or any counselor that you go to, one of the first things that you do is you identify what's wrong. Because until you identify what's wrong, you can't really grow in an area. And that's tough to do. The second thing that you do is you talk to someone and you get involved in community. I mean, talk to someone is huge. For me, uh, f- six years ago, five, yeah, six years ago, uh, I finally realized I needed some help, uh, that I couldn't fix myself. And one of the toughest things that I did uh, was just walking into a counselor's office because uh, there's a whole lot of pride in my life. And for me, just the idea that I needed to go get professional help from someone was pretty mortifying. I mean, I came from, uh, well, I'm just a prideful person. I like to fix myself. don't like to admit that I need help. And so I walked into a guy named Terry Norris, and I walked into his office. And uh, for me, that was, that was the hardest thing to do, was just walk into the office of a counselor and say, hey, I'm broken, and uh, I need help. I'm not sure exactly what's wrong, but I hope you can fix me. And uh, Terry is a fantastic, godly man. Met with him for, for a year and a half. But after that, after walking in and just saying, hey, look, I need help, I'm broken. Man, for me, that, that was the tough step. After that, it, it was just easier. Man, if you're struggling with addiction, it doesn't matter what kind. We have a number of things we do here at the church. We have life groups, which are huge. Uh, we have Celebrate Recovery. And uh, Celebrate Recovery is a, a recovery program that we do uh, for hangups and hurts in life. Um, we have information outside. Come find me after service. I'll get you info about it. They meet Friday nights, divide up into groups, and that is a fantastic program. If you ever want to learn what real community is like, go to Celebrate Recovery. Go to an AA meeting. Man, community is done right there. People helping people, people loving people. Talk to someone, get involved in community. Under that isolation is where addictions go to grow. Man, unless we're willing to confess what's going on, Unless we're willing to confess whatever it is that we're struggling with, that we find ourselves saying, I know that that's not wise, but I keep finding myself falling into that. Unless we're willing to talk about it, we're not really ever going to be able to address the issue or grow. The last one is this, just pursue Jesus. When Jesus was talking to his disciples, he made it pretty clear that, that choosing to follow Jesus, it's a decision that we make for the first time when we decide to follow him. But then after that, it's a decision that we have to make Sometimes every day, sometimes more than that. Luke 9, 23, this is one of my life verses. Jesus, he's talking with his disciples, and he says this. He says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. He must choose to deny himself. Then he must take up his cross and follow me. 
And Jesus says, and you have to do that every day. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And then Jesus says, whoever wants to save his life on his own is going to end up losing it. But whoever loses his life by turning control over to Jesus, that's how you save it. Because the truth is, we're all addicts. We're all at differing levels of recovery. The only question is, what is the object of my addiction? And have I turned control of my life over to Jesus? Because some of us, we struggle with stuff that, that if we get involved with some Christians, brothers and sisters, and we just shed some light on it, and we say, hey, like, I need help just loving people and loving Jesus. And right now, I'm too quick to tear people down. I just, any chance I get to make fun of somebody or to belittle or slight somebody, I take that opportunity because it makes me feel better. Some of us are at a point where, hey, I've decided to follow Jesus, but here's the deal. I'm so image conscious that I spend all my life on social media. I don't actually have real relationships with people because I'm scared to let people see what's really in me, and, and that's the thing that I just need to feed. Some of us are here today, and we're struggling with, with addictions that are going to wreck our life much quicker. You know, maybe, man, I just, I can't, I can't say no to the bottle. Every day, I find myself going back to that. Maybe there's a drug addiction. Maybe we're someone who, we have this, this secret life online, or we find ourselves looking at images on the web because we're looking for some sort of f- fulfillment. Maybe for some of us, it's, it's work. It's this idea that I just need one more dollar. Well, whatever I have, it's just never quite enough. I need just a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. Because what we're doing there is we're replacing the role that Jesus desperately wants to have in our life with something else. And as soon as we figure out what that is and start moving Jesus back in there, we're going to find ourselves getting healthier and healthier and healthier. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Jesus, thank you for Paul. Thank you for his testimony. Thank you that we got to see this life that was headed directly away from you turn around. Um, God, thank you for his honesty, his vulnerability, his his ability to say, look, I, I am a devout follower of Jesus. I'm a guy who's planted so many churches. And yet, I, I still find myself going back and doing the things that I don't want to do, that I know are not good, that are going to mess up my life. But God, thank you that in you, we have that grace that, that there really is no condemnation. Jesus, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your sacrifice. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.